Here we go. Yeah! The Earth Fox Podcast. Welcome to the Earth Fox Podcast. With 404. Missing Link. Yeah, he's a great man, by the way. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And visit us at vox404.com. Enjoy the show. Well, I've got my coffee, but it's almost gone, unfortunately. I drink everything that I drink, I drink way too fast, which is one of the reasons that I don't drink alcohol. And it's, but it's not like a, an addiction thing. It's more of like how, a, how my body reacts to it, but definitely a, a, a byproduct. I mean, it's, it's, it's all for the best, but any, anything that I have in front of me, just, well, it's there. I, I got to put it down. And when it's alcohol, that, that ends badly. What are you drinking this morning slash afternoon, sir? Uh, well, I've already had my coffee, so I usually drink coffee. Uh, that's my go-to. And oh, I'm actually the opposite. I, I drink very slowly for some reason. I always find that I drink quite slowly. So, so, is there, uh, so you prefer coffee over tea? I a, do personally, yeah. yeah. So is there, what, uh, is there an etiquette? Do certain situations call for, I mean, do you have, if someone's drinking coffee in the afternoon, does that raise an eyebrow? Are they going, oh, drinking coffee, you're, you know, planning on a late night, or is it, is it all preference? Personally? Yeah, I think, so. I, actually, you know what, I, I reckon there probably is some kind of, uh, so, some kind of uh, stigma around that, you know, if you're drinking coffee late at night, people do tend to say, oh, you know, you don't be able to sleep or, you know, why don't we have a tea instead? People come in, do you want a cup of tea? How do you take it? You know, that's, that's quite common whenever you go over to someone's house here in the UK, it's like kettle on straight away and, um, you know, and, and that, it's just easy as well because most people in the UK drink tea. So I always, I always go for tea. I don't ask for. So how do you like your, like, how do you like your coffee? I, I really like cappuccinos. Nice. Not uh, any uh, any sweetener, any syrups, or you know, any kind of dressings, or just uh... no. I I like a medium roast bean. I like two shots of espresso with a medium roast bean and a, a bit of foamy milk. No sugar, no nothing. That's good. Nice. How very American. I would assume. I mean, I don't. I I don't know. That's just. That's very. You'd be right. You'd be right at home. In, uh, yeah, probably in, right. In Seattle. Yeah. It does sound that way. Yeah, it does sound that way. Oh yeah, I guess because yeah, Seattle's like the home of Starbucks, right? Yes, yes, it is. Unfortunately, <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't know. I I have opinions. I I really want to like Starbucks, uh, but they they make it so hard sometimes. I mean, just as a as a business, not like as a as a coffee. But I used to like. I never liked coffee. I remember when. Uh, the first time I sort of had to force myself to drink coffee was when I had, I had a newspaper route, uh, right, right out of high school. One of the, or it was, I guess it was, it was right out of high school slash the beginnings of, of college where I, you know, had to go into the office at, you know, one o'clock in the morning. And, uh, I was, going to school trying to have a social life and i think i had at least one other job at that point and i was literally getting my sleep 20 minutes at a time class would end if i had any sort of break in between i would go to my car and try to sleep 
as much as I could before I had to get up to go to my next class. And uh, it was brutal. I, I don't wish that on anybody. And I would, I would go into my newspaper delivery job, which provided coffee for us. And I would, dr- I would drink it out of a tall glass, like straight black, like Folgers, oh. nasty ground, like the worst coffee that you, oh, you, could, no. you could possibly ask for. And I would drink it out of a tall glass, like you would drink, you know, iced tea or, or something out of. And, uh, and that was really where I discovered the magic of coffee. Like, oh, it's so much easier to get through this shift when I've had, you know, 24 ounces of, of coffee to drink than it is if I just go in and try to gut it out with a, you know, a <laughs> diet Coke or something like that. And I, I mean, I was 18 years old. I had no idea, uh, how to handle myself in, in a situation like that. Uh, but generally when, when I don't have to just force any kind of caffeine into my body by any means necessary, I really liked to have my coffee sweetened up, pour a little chocolate sauce in there, have a mocha, uh, because if it could taste as little like coffee as possible, that was the best case scenario for me. But now I have these, uh, I've got like, I don't know, acid reflux or, or whatever that that's what they call it on, on TV. And I think that's largely because, uh, coffee is really acidic and um mm-hmm. i do i i don't and i don't know if that means that i like darker roasts because i actually like darker roasts or if i like darker roasts because like a dark roast bean uh i'm told has a lot less acid content than uh a light roast but i just started uh recently because of just changes in my routine i've started visiting a different coffee shop and getting a cold brew, uh, you know, in the afternoon. Oh, nice. You know, two, 3 PM. And, uh, I always thought that a dark roast bean is what you use for a cold brew coffee. But this particular brew, I swear this is the best, the, the best coffee shop in the, in the entire County. And I think they use a light roast because it and it sounds weird to describe coffee this way but it's fruity in a i oh, mean okay. in, in completely not sweet but uh it's just it's it's absolutely delicious and it's it's one of those things where you know I I never thought I would be this kind of person but it's one of those things where I taste it and I think oh I have to have this I have to I have to figure out how this is done so that I can do it myself and have it every time. But really, I need to stop or at least back off on my on my coffee intake, which I have done over the last week or so. Um so I've been thinking about switching to tea, but there's this I mean I don't know if it's an urban legend or what, but they say that tea has less caffeine. And I know you can you can brew coffee stronger and get more caffeine out of it. But I know you could also do that with tea, you know, throw an extra bag in. Is there Yeah. I mean, is it is it an in your opinion is it a noticeable difference in the amount of, you know, zoom you get from a 
a cup of tea versus a cup of coffee? I would I would say so. I don't think I've ever felt like a cup of tea has really like woken me up or or, or anything compared to you know c- compared to something like a couple of shots of espresso or something like that. That's like you know jet fuel compared to tea. I know I love it. Over the over the weekend, I had I had family in town. My dad and his wife, because uh, you know my parents divorced when I was very young, and I was making. Uh, we we just recently dug my because we used to do, you know, my wife and I before our kids were born, we used to have, uh, you know, the espresso machine on the counter. That was how we drank our coffee. Now it's it's easier. We do the uh, the French press. Do you know what that is? Yeah, I do actually. Yeah, that's so. That's become over the last couple of years the only way that I like to drink, like just regular, you know, home brewed coffee. Nice. Um, I it's, it's for endless reasons. Uh, it is a little bit more labor intensive. But over this weekend, I I was brewing. We we dug the espresso machine out, and I was brewing shots of espresso and dumping them into my drip coffee. Like, uh, let's just. I I wonder what I wonder what this is like because I try to make uh like I really enjoy an iced americano, which I I don't. It, it's it almost seems like a little bit of an oxymoron because you know you're supposed to. Um, and I am no coffee professional. That's my other half. But I know when you make an Americano, you, dr- you pour the espresso. And I mean, I don't know. Apparently, it's relevant where whether or not you pour the shots in the cup and then the, the cream or, you know, vice versa. You pour the cream in and then pour the shots on top. Like, I guess, in the traditional sense... Most like like for a cappuccino, your espresso is in the glass, and then they mm-hmm. pour the and then they pour the milk on top. Yes. For uh, for like a macchiato, it's the the milk in the glass, and then the shots on top of that. For yes. I don't know why that needs a new name. I mean, for me, when it shows up. I stir that bitch all all up and drink it like it doesn't, you know, like what is it what does it matter? Um but americano, you know, you're you're supposed to drink it black, I I assume because you just pour the you mix the shot with water. So I'm mixing my shots with water and then dumping them into into a cup of of just home brewed coffee. And and it was pretty cool going with the medium roast because I didn't have any uh, espresso roast on hand, and uh, it it's, I mean all all has been well in my experiments. That's but, great. But That's I great. I love it. I don't I don't know uh, if I should continue because I know like drinking. Well, I. Honestly, anything in excess is a problem. I think I should probably look into more sleep and and less coffee. But you know, that's what they say about the the, the minds of geniuses. You know, you only you you only sleep for four hours a day, and 
uh, you know, the, the rest of your time, you must be productive. I know I struggle with, with switching my brain off. I almost welcome, like if, if I didn't have to get up early to go to work every morning, I would be a total night owl. Oh, me too. Me, me too. I like, and now I do a lot more exercise and that helped a bunch. Like it helped a lot. But before, yeah, I'd be like up until like 4 a.m. And yeah. then waking up at like, you know, two in the afternoon. It was just terrible. And that's, that's, I think why that I am driven to sleep so little because once the sun's up, I want to get at it. But then it's, it's like, there, I don't know. There's something about the nighttime. Everyone's in bed. And it's like the world is your oyster. Like, ah, now there's no, there's no traffic on the roads. No one uh, awake to bother me. I can do whatever I want for as long as I want. And since my, uh, my activities, I mean, even though I'm largely sedentary, what I'm doing is so much more mentally stimulating than, than like watching a movie or, or a TV show. Like, if you want to put me to sleep, put on a movie. <laughs> right, 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 right. Because I'll just, I'll sit there and, and watch and enjoy and then suddenly start drifting off. But if I'm gaming or composing or recording anything, I feel like I could go, I mean, I could go until I was starting to feel the negative effects of, of a lack of sleep and then probably go for a few more hours. Um, unless, like you say, I've, uh, you know, I've worked out that day. That usually does a pretty good job. At yeah, putting me exercise to sleep. is crazy. Yeah, exercise is crazy. Like, it sorts most of every problem out. What do you do? What's your routine? I like climbing. I go to the climbing gym, so I do lots of bouldering and climbing, and that's, oh, I do man. that until the place closes. That's awesome. That's right up my alley. I like to be really efficient uh, because I'm like, I'm, if, if I've carved out the time in my day, to do some exercise, I want it, I want it be effective. I don't, I like, I want to maximize my, my gains, you know, like I don't, I, I'm not one of those, one of those people that will just like get on the bike for an hour. Like that seems like right. way too much time. Not I me, mean, not, but not because it's too hard. Not because, I mean, I'm not sitting there going, uh, it's been 45 minutes and I just can't go any longer. It's like, oh my God, it's been 45 minutes. I could have done so much other, so many other things in this amount of time. Right, right. So you're like min-maxing how much, you know, exercise you do in a set period of time. Oh yeah. I want to like, I want to take 20 minutes and just kill myself. Unfortunately, I like, I don't have the access to, I mean, there's, there's gyms around um, but fuck that, you know, I, so I just do like, I literally, I, so I've got a few, uh, 40 pound dumbbells and, uh, like an exercise ball and I do push ups. So I've, I'm doing like arms, abs, chest, back, like all at once. And then I'll get on the bike for, for some cardio for like a half an hour, but it's like, you know, my hands are free so I can do stuff while I'm, while I'm doing that. Right. I got, I've got you. 
and uh, and like every other every other day. But I, dude, I wish that I could uh, that I could climb. That's that's such a great workout. Or like uh, like run run stairs. Although I have a real uh, like I have a real attention problem. So <laughs> if I can't distract myself while I'm exercising, then I just agonize that I'm exercising. Like if I if I get on my you know IRL bike and ride somewhere, I need to have a destination. Otherwise, I'm like, why why am I doing this? This is pointless. Oh yeah, for exercise, but that's not good enough. It's almost like this, like the uh, the smoking thing, you know, smoking cigarettes. Who yeah. who now in our time knows or doesn't know that that smoking cigarettes is bad for your health? Yeah, do you see many people smoking anymore? Because I, I don't in the UK, really. Um, no, you know, not that I... No, I mean, not that I recall. Every once in a while, like, there's, there's generally someone outside the gas station, you know, that, that works there. Yeah. Is, is smoking one. Um, but, but, like, compared to, like, 15 years ago, I mean, you know completely different right where it was yeah where where everybody was smoking and indoors and on airplanes and, and i mean oh yeah it wasn't it, <laughs> it wasn't that mad, bad of it? course but uh yeah i don't know i i have this weird and i i think we've talked about it on the show before but the um i think it was andrew huberman went on joe rogan and talked about the positive benefits of nicotine and how, you know, like you don't, you don't want to vape it because of all of the chemicals and you don't want to smoke mm. it, you know, smoke tobacco because of all the chemicals. And of course the tar and everything that comes from yeah. the, you know, the burning plant material, but how it, it does all of these great things for your, you know, your, your cognitive abilities. And, uh, of course the first thing that jumps into my conspiracy brain is, Oh well, that's why they want to ban it because it it makes you a it makes you a genius. And then my next thought is, all right, how do I get some nicotine? <laughs> what's the wh- and I think I literally Googled what's the healthiest way to ingest nicotine. But I don't like to be I don't like to be addicted to things. No, like, no, that's the, that's the only thing I would say. Would be the downside is like nicotine is like highly addictive, right? So. And smoking, I smoked for years, and it just it just sucks. Like it was, it was fine for a while, you know. Whatever, I enjoyed it, and then I vaped for years after that because getting rid of, I mean, first of all, the burning stick that you're holding between your fingers is just like, oh, you always got to be careful. You're not gonna bump somebody with it or touch, you know. But then, and then you've got a butt. Now you've got a piece of garbage that you got to try to get rid of, and you're not. You want to you know, not start a forest fire by flicking it out your window. Like so many people still do. Although I'm, I'm skeptical as to what's really starting all of the wildfires, which we can get into. Yeah, for sure. But it's, uh, you know, it's, it stinks. It's unattractive. And and it's, it's weird how smoking has taken this cultural, uh, turn to now be like you know you could be you know one of my favorite media personalities that you know adam carolla says 
your pe- people look at you as a lesser person if you smoke than you than if you're like a deadbeat dad. Like if <laughs> if if you if somebody sees you smoking a cigarette with your kid in the car, you are a worse person than if you have abandoned that same kid with your, you know, one night stand baby mama from, you know, eight years ago. It's really bizarre. And and that's why when when yeah, somebody like and like Andrew Huberman says, oh, nicotine is actually really good for your body and your uh, you know, central nervous system and your your cognitive capabilities. It makes me wonder how we got into such a position where we're gonna judge somebody so harshly for something for for just a bad habit for something so yeah. so simple and it makes me wonder like how has smoking fallen so far culturally but alcohol which creates so many more problems is still mm. totally fine and celebrated and you know people are writing songs about it and you're not much of a drinker either is that right no, not really. I mean, I'll socially drink at the weekend, you know, maybe a couple of ciders or a couple of beers or something, but no, no, not really. I'm, no, it never really crosses my mind. I'm the same way, and I generally don't even like, I mean, socially, like, I will just because I have a little bit of anxiety, you know, a little bit of social anxiety, and, it, and it's, I, I find that I'll just sit in a chair and kind of look around and observe and, and not really engage but having a you know a cocktail or something like that just kind of i don't know lubricates the social gears i mean it's it's not that i it's not as if i need some assistance in coming up with something to say i guess i just don't get the satisfaction of social interaction when i am not you know if i don't imbibe a little bit it's kind of interesting. I haven't given that a lot of analytical thought. Maybe it's because I'm really opinionated and sort <laughs> of like like a lot of the things that I believe culturally and politically they have this negative connotation because of how the media represents the same people that that share those same political beliefs even though yeah. like it's it's crazy i just saw this uh statistic i don't know if i mean i didn't look into it myself but it's something like uh you know joe rogan gets like 200 million listens to his to each of his podcast episodes to CNN who has like 200,000 viewers. But they're the mainstream media. They're I mean they they hold this position at the top of the pyramid as you know in in the United States as being the you know the arbiters of truth. CNN and MSNBC and 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 Fox News their their viewership pales in comparison to people like Tucker Carlson who's just about to have or or already does have Two million followers, or I mean, not two million, ten million. I'm pulling it up right now. We're gonna find out. 
Yeah, I feel like, you know, if the mainstream media has much less viewership than these sort of more modern figures, I think the only reason that they can be called, you know, mainstream media now or is because people say that they're the mainstream media. You know, if you, I know those stats as well, and it's, it's true. They, their viewership year on year declines and therefore their opinion declines in value. So the only reason they have any real inherent values because other people you know say cnn is valuable or say fox is valuable and as soon as people stop caring about that then they'll listen more to people like tucker and more people will listen to people like uh joe rogan and other political figures that that do their own thing in their own sandbox even someone like piers morgan which i hate and despise uh quite vigorously uh but but you know his his viewership will probably be much better than what would be your standard sort of news show well tucker's got 10 million 62,000 and a few dozen oh piers morgan is trending to what is it piers morgan has eight and a half million so he's doing yeah, pretty good too. What what is he what is he trending for? I'd love to know. I know I I, I really have to know too. Yeah, it's probably something stupid. Let's We're not playing get into our the algorithm up. right now. <laughs> We're really playing into the algorithm. <laughs> oh, did he have some beef with Peer with Sinead O'Connor? Or oh, is he... I don't I don't know. Oh, he got booed at the National Television <laughs> Awards. Let's get some context here. Oh, in here. the UK, right. Uh, Piers the Morgan is here. Okay, you know, I oh. did not hey. watch this. Okay, so he was... Hey, 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 everyone. There's the booze. Everyone, say what you like about Piers Morgan. Well, so that why wasn't... Why were they booing him? Uh, that, that, in the context, I know I'm not sharing my screen, but in, in the context, he was just announced. Piers Morgan is here, and at first it was... It was initial cheers, and that sort of deteriorated into booze, all, all for their f- political beliefs. Like, that, that's the strange thing. Like, oh, he doesn't think the same things as me, so I can't, I can't stand for him. I, like, not only is, can I not like him, but also I have to make everybody else not like him. And if somebody else does like him, then I have to judge that i mean just it but it's the same thing with tucker carlson like depending on what room he's in he could be celebrated or you know he could be detested it's it's so strange and i i feel like it's like this thing i mean maybe it was going on below the surface yeah you know for forever go ahead i mean for for someone like piers morgan it's infinitely more problematic because Piers Morgan is someone with such a low moral value that really it begs the question whether you can believe anything that he says at all. And not because it's factual or not factual or not because of the opinions, you know, um, that he has on a certain thing, but for the very simple fact that he will constantly contradict himself and change his opinions in a very short period of time really just to appeal to a new audience. So the sort of Piers Morgan you're seeing today, which is a little bit more edgy, should we say, is not the Piers Morgan that I saw four years ago when he was on like 
ITV or something and being, you know, somewhere, somewhere almost in the woke sort of area. And it was just like, I don't know. He, he, you just can't trust uh, that he's being impartial because he basically just says what you want to hear rather than saying anything reasonably uh, valuable. So I would boo Piers Morgan for the simple fact that I find him completely and utterly useless to journalism. Well, that is an interesting point because I agree. You must be authentic. You're, you're not a politician. You're not, you're not representing people. A lot of people get really upset, like on the topic of gay marriage, for example, a politician comes out, they, a, a politician decides that they're going to run for president and then it, it, it comes out, it's exposed that, oh, 15 years ago, they were in a debate or a town hall or they were on some stage with a microphone saying that they think that marriage should be between one man and one woman. And in the context of this speech, they were making the audience cheers and, and, and that's the point. As a politician, you're supposed to represent your constituents. And if your constituents think that marriage ought to be between one man and one woman, then that's the position that you should present. And then 15 years later, if your constituents think, you know what, we've changed our mind, some of us have died, some of us have approached voting age, and now we, as your constituency, feel that you should support gay marriage. Well, then it's incumbent upon the politician to say, I do support. And, and, but really, what you personally believe shouldn't matter at all. It should be about what you're willing to do as a representative for your voters yeah. in, in Washington. But Piers Morgan, well, see, he's representing a network. He's representing corporate sponsors. And, 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 and let, me, let me know what you think about this, because one of my favorite podcasts that I listen to every week, I mean, every day, is Timcast IRL. There's this journalist, Tim Poole. He's been around. He's gone into war-torn areas. He's done a lot of reporting. I think he, he probably... His catapult to fame was when he was invited to come on the Joe Rogan podcast with Jack Dorsey, former CEO of Twitter, and uh, Vijagade, who was like his uh, legal, I mean, it was like the head of the legal team at Twitter and, you know, like his, his personal legal advisor. And they had a debate about Twitter censorship, and it was... It was interesting, but also kind of gross because like Tim Pool should have had another guy on his side. It should have been Tim Pool plus one with Jack Dorsey and Vijagade with Joe Rogan kind of being the moderator because there were these uncomfortable moments where Tim Pool would say, you know, he would sort of start pushing back against the things, you know, the claims that the Twitter execs were making. And then Joe Rogan would kind of join the side of the Twitter execs. And I'm going, well, hold on. I want to hear, you know, in, in sort of an effort to like move the conversation beyond this sticking point. And I'm listening, thinking to myself, well, hold on. I want to hear, like, I want them to answer this question that, that Tim Poole is asking them. Uh, but I mean, I would recommend anybody go, go look it up. It's, uh, it's years old. Uh, and, and so now Tim, Tim Poole has this massive uh, media company. Uh, multiple podcasts every day, and uh, but but my favorite and sort of the I don't know if you would call it the flagship, but uh, 
it certainly seems that way is the podcast called Timcast IRL where he will have uh you know one one guest that that rotates every every day uh you know a journalist from some other publication or um god who he so he had a you know he's had presidential candidates uh Vivek Ramaswamy was on a few weeks ago he's one of the you know one of the few republican candidates that's polling well well enough to have any kind of relevance but on in addition to these guests there are the uh you know like like the stable of regulators uh, uh, not regulators the stable of regulars and one of which is Ian Crossland. He was one of the founders of Minds.com, kind of like an alternate social media platform. And um, he's worked closely with Tim, Tim Pool for uh, a long time. And I, I've recently learned that his role on the show is to sort of be a contrarian. And I, I feel, you know, I haven't approached him with this question. But I feel like he is being a contrarian for the sake of being a contrarian, for the sake of sort of boosting the conversation and, and ruffling some people's feathers. And he, he's very emotional in a good way. And I think he injects a lot of that emotion into the, the conversations and the discussions that they're having. So, uh, as I mean, what do you think of that? As it applies to Piers Morgan, do you think that he is trying to play the contrarian in in these situations, or do you think that he's just is is he just changing his positions to be a douche, or do you think maybe he's changing his positions to satisfy some corporate sponsors? I don't know. It's not, like when I look at Piers Morgan's career. Um, it seems very self-centered, like, you know, he used to be on a big network and doing more like, and he, he would always back like the, this is the thing about Piers Morgan. He's like an agenda guy. So whatever he's believing in the current time, it's not like here are the facts and here's this. It's, this is my opinion on this and you should believe what I believe. That's the kind of thing that he talks about, which is what I hate because he's basically making your mind up for you rather than presenting facts or trying to get facts out of his interviewed guests so that other people can make an informed decision. And, uh, you know, he was on, like, talk shows and stuff uh, beforehand and on other shows, and he would always back the fucking woke agenda all the time, or he would, he would cross the fence all the time, and it would just be so annoying. But he would do it in an agenda sequence. And wh what I think has happened is, essentially, uh, he's been, like, kind of ostracized uh out of the sort of woke thing because it's kind of like you know all that shit is just becoming so unpopular uh now with the general public and he's obviously seen a gap in the market in the uk to be a, a sort of voice of uh quote-unquote reason in the sort of uh, you know anti-woke sort of free speech agenda type thing and he's just filling that space because no one else is no one else is doing that in the uk um, and so it's been widely successful for him because he's been able to get on people like Andrew Tate and uh, Jordan Peterson and lots of other you know people from from that kind of space. I won't generalize too much, 
Um, but I think it's purely monetary, right? Like it could be sponsors that sponsor him. You know, he might have deals that 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 are better for that thing. But honestly, I think it was self-preservation. You know, Piers Morgan's career was like on the rocks, bro. People hated him. He, his opinion sucked. And they were like not even valid. And then now he's doing this. So I don't know. I just, uh, yeah, I think give it another five years and he'll be doing a different show with a completely different set of agenda and a completely different set of opinions just because that's what pays money. Oh, he'll go on Fox News. He should do that. He should go on Fox News. I bet Fox would love to have him. And then, oh, for sure. And then, I mean, especially if he's a corporate guy. I mean, I think that's why. Guys like Tucker Carlson and, and Dan Bongino and, uh, uh, oh, who was the other guy? Lou Dobbs. Like these staples. Well, Dan Bongino wasn't a staple. He was, he was a here and, you know, there and back again kind of guy. But Pierce Morgan, he was on CNN. That, that only lasted for three years, 2011 to 2014. And I think, I mean, if I had to guess, I would say that is the moment where, where Pierce Morgan realized, oh, I should be more of a company man, but that just further, uh, you know, yeah. in, entrenches him in in the douchebag category. Honestly, he, he is like a, he's like the biggest barnacle on the side of you know news and journalism. You just can't <laughs> fucking get rid of the guy. It, you know, he is so. I cannot tell you how unpopular Piers Morgan is in the UK. Like, but, and it, I will, think it's for yeah. that. It's for that exact reason. He's a company man and he'll yeah. say what he's told to say, which means he has no authenticity. And furthermore, he has no credibility. Yeah. Like he's, uh, he's disliked <laughs> by, that's how you know he's fucking up because he's being disliked by basically everyone with every kind of walk of life. There's not a single person I've ever spoken to that's gone, oh, wow. Yeah. You know that new Piers Morgan uncensored show? That's really good. Like, no one fucking watches that here in the UK. The only people that watch it are people that don't know who Piers Morgan is, which are, like, people over in America or Australia and other places. That's why uh, Piers Morgan on Centers is on, like, uh, Talk TV and Fox Nation and sometimes and Sky News Australia. Like, it's not really here in the UK. You can't watch it here in the UK because no one fucking likes the guy. He's just so... Oh, mate. I can't... Yeah. I'll shout about Piers Morgan now because it's just making me angry. Well, you have to be authentic, right? And if you're not, if you're not authentically you and you're not authentically the company man, then you're, you mean you're useless to everyone around you. Like, I think one of the things, it, so it was really good that he did this, right? But it also really soured his appeal with, you know, the, the corporate types that want him to, uh, you know, tow the company or, you know, regurgitate the company narrative. When he came out against COVID and, and all of the, the mandates and the lockdowns and, and he said, you know, I was wrong. We were wrong. I've, I've reassessed my position. And, and that was, he, he kind of endeared himself to a lot of the, the people that, that knew that, you know, COVID wasn't what we were all being told it was by the rest of the mainstream outlets, you know, himself included, he tried to correct course and say, I was wrong. We were wrong. We should have done a better job. And and now look at him. I mean, he's be- yeah. He's- I mean, <laughs> e- even that is so disingenuous though, because he would have made a bunch of money on the ratings from saying everyone should stay at home and do all the lockdown stuff. Because people were like, yes, yes, that's the mainstream opinion, right? 
And then now that all the facts have come out and now it's the mainstream opinion that it was a bad idea, he's just following that. So he's not doing anything special. He's only, what he does is he looks skin deep into anything and then just takes that opinion. So he didn't investigate anything to do with COVID and that's why he took the mainstream opinion. And now a few people have come out saying that it was a bad idea. Then now he takes that opinion. It, it's like, it's ridiculous. It really is like the, the most uh, fake uh, news persona ever. So <clears throat> do you think any of the do you think any of the new covid mandates that are that are creeping up are are they going to gain any traction? Do you think people are going to go along with it again? Not in the UK. It'd be fucking uh political suicide for them to do it before the election next year. So, you know, if they did that, they could just they could just kiss their fucking election goodbye. Yeah, I think we're we're looking at this the same sort of thing in uh in the States also, but it's just, it's interesting because, uh, there, there was this story. I mean, it's, it's been ongoing about this restaurant in, in Burbank, California called Tin Horn Flats. They were one of the restaurants that was shut down, uh, you know, in the 15 days to slow the spread. But since they were in California, it became, you know, 15 months, 25 months, uh, you know, on and on and on because the tyrants enjoyed their expansion of power. So they opened for uh, outdoor dining, even though outdoor dining was also allowed for no other reason than just authoritarian, uh, authoritarian power trips. And uh, they were viciously attacked by Los Angeles County and the city of Burbank. Uh, they came down to their restaurant with their thugs and put up a permanent fence around the property and padlocked it so that nobody wow, could they put up a fence. Oh yeah, dude. It was crazy. So, so crazy, like un- unbelievable. And, and I was always of the position that you should, uh, deny all of the lockdowns operate as, as normal, let them, Fine you and fine you and fine you as much. Fine, fine you till to their heart's content. And then you go to court and you say, see, this was unconstitutional. There was no legislation. They can't enforce these fines. And then you get away. Scott Free. I almost wish that we would have done this podcast tomorrow because today, um, in in only a couple of hours, there is going to be another hearing. On this case, uh, unfortunately, the the state of the Justice Department is such that there's not really you, you can't realistically expect justice to be served because unfortunately, it depends on what district you're in and what sort of judges that you have at your disposal. Because we've arrived at a point in this country where everything is done for uh, political gain. And yeah. no one yeah, is yeah. really interested in doing the right thing, a la Piers Morgan. Like, he, he just, he wants to keep having a job. And that's where all of these problems have come from. People wanting to keep their job. People just doing their job. Oh, you know, like, you, I'm, I'm sure you saw all of the videos of the citizens in Australia being 
uh, choke slammed to the concrete because they wouldn't put a mask on. And some power hungry police officer thought, hey, I can uh, I can get a little rough with this person and everything's going to be okay because I'm doing the work of the regime. Has anything happened? uh, Real world in terms of of lockdowns and mandates in the UK, are they trying? Uh, No, I don't. I, I have heard that scientists, UK scientists are saying that they should implement uh, new lockdowns. But as from the government, there has not been a single peep about anything. Not even a rumor or a leak, which they're very leaky, so you'd hear about it. And quite often they will leak it on purpose to see how it would perform in the news. But I've not heard a single thing. And you would, right? You totally would. So... I think in terms of the UK, the chances we go into into some kind of lockdown is close to zero. I, it has to be. Do you think mass mandates are going to come back? Do you think people would go along with those? I don't think so in the UK. I, I think, you know, right now, the, the, the current government, and it's nothing to do with science or medicine or anything like that. I think it's just down to, to purely, you know, self-preservation I don't think the Tories can can deal with any more stress as they're currently under. They have, I think, they've got at least four or five major like scandals going on at the moment. There's just been a recent one about they've found out that a lot of our schools in the UK were built with these ceilings made of like aerated concrete, and that concrete only lasts thirty years, and then they've just kind of left it to the last minute, and just before the schools went back. They had to close 150 schools because the ceiling could have caved in at any point. So Jeez. now they're in, yeah, and and then they go, and we're not going to give the schools any more funding to sort it out. And there could be up to 500 schools. Now they're looking at like all the hospitals that might have been made with it. So the Tories are just, a, you know, they're just attracting more bullshit as their uh, as their ineptitude and their um, stupidity seems to just you know, infect every facet of uh, government institutions and the public institutions. Uh, they, they just seem to fuck everything up that they see, and let alone the fact that the courts are fucked, the NHS is fucked, and the, um, the immigration thing is completely messed up. So you got all these issues, right? And so do they really want to start doing mask mandates and, and lockdowns? No, okay? As soon as someone goes, uh, they're going to go, fuck you, I'm not going to listen to you Tories because you guys are a bunch of wankers and you guys are fucking everything up. So why should we trust you? And then when it comes to the election, every time, yeah, they're going to come to the election next year and people are going to think, nope, I'm not voting for you because you're the guy that put lockdowns in uh, like, you know, in 2023, 2024. And you're the people that messed up all of our government institutions. So no, it's too much heat. It's too much heat. They, They would literally never win again for like 15 years if they did that. Yeah, I I think and I hope that uh, the sentiment is the same in the states. It's just it's really hard to tell because it's I, yeah I think it's more difficult in in the states because Joe Biden a lot of people voted for Joe Biden and he's the you know, he's the incumbent allegedly right but he <laughs> is the incumbent president and he, even on paper you know he has you know let let's say a mandate right. Whereas our government doesn't have a mandate. You know, Rishi Sunak was not elected by the people. 
and he wasn't actually elected by his own members. He just happened to be the guy that was just left standing. So for him to start doing a lot of really crazy policies and decisions, he has a lot less to stand on than Joe Biden even would because, you know, you can, you can definitely say with, with some shred of validity that at least one person in, in the US voted for Joe Biden, but not a single Certainly. person voted, voted for uh, Rishi Sunak in the UK. And that's the major difference. Yeah, that is that is strange. But you you bring up an interesting point. Because Joe Biden, there's a tweet from Joe Biden that says he's going to end COVID-19. Well, now Jill Biden, his wife just tested positive. So now Joe Biden is going to go back to masking indoors just himself. I I read the story last night. It was a little bit of a clickbait headline. Something like Joe Biden says he's going to return to indoor masking. <laughs> what, 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 what? So after reading through it, you realize, oh, Jill Biden tested positive. So now he's worried. So Joe Biden yeah. himself is going to start wearing mask indoors. But we I mean, we all know. Right. Like, I mean, that makes to, to some degree that that makes sense. Right. The guy is like 80 million years old. He's in <laughs> poor true. health. And now he's contracted a virus. He's contracted a, a virus, right? Eighty million in one. You know, that's just it. I mean, it it, it it does sound yeah, like it does sound you know completely outrageous for someone to get a virus and then go out of their way to give it to other people. Um, so it, to some degree, I I I actually respect the fact that he's uh taken measures to try and not give the virus to other people. You know, a mask is not going to do much, but it's 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 at least some sort of sentiment, right? Um, but at the same time, he's not saying that everyone else should do it. Uh, so to Yet. some degree, I, I, yeah, if he starts doing that, he can give a fuck himself. But. Well, and see, and this is what worries me. Okay. So he's, he's putting the mask on now. <clears throat> if there was data to support masking, uh, as being effective, um, that would be one thing, but but what really bothers me is now he's out there on camera. He's yeah, out there on the camera on wearing him. his mask. And there's, there's yeah. so many videos, so many videos of these officials. They're, they're on camera. They don't know they're on camera, but someone is filming them and they're off stage. Mm -hmm. they're, off, they're off stage and they're standing in a group of people, not, not socially distanced. They're standing there joking around, talking about, you know, whatever, looking over their note cards. Then it's almost time. It's, it's nearly time for them to go on stage in front of the microphone. So they put their mask on and they walk. Oh, what did the, the, the staff do in front of the cameras? No. Well, I mean, whoever is going to be, you know, doing the speaking right now, she, uh, this is, I, I'm, I'm referencing a specific video that I have a picture of in my mind's eye, but I can't remember. I can't remember the context or uh, the the person specifically. Was it? Was it a? It was, what is it? A recent one? This or was, was this like, oh. no. This was like 2020, 2021. Oh, okay, okay. I thought you meant like right now. I was like, this is outrageous. Like, no, why the fuck are they doing that? Not yet. Not yet. Okay, Fingers okay, crossed. okay, okay. 
But then she's I think the annoying so, thing So she's on camera walking to the podium with her mask yeah. on and then she takes right. her mask off when she gets to the podium. It's it like, <laughs> classic. The theater of it is is nauseating. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean the the funny thing I mean I, I realized early on about the masks, right? Um, because the the fact that they changed the narrative over from what kind of mask you could use. Because the, the medical professionals needed the KN95 ones, which are like hermetically sealed masks that have, you know, filters of viruses. And that stops you contracting the virus through, through the air. Um, but of course, they needed those in the hospitals, so they didn't want people buying them up. So they allowed other people to just have any sort of face covering. But those face coverings that we had, they, there were evidence to say that if you had a virus, it would reduce the amount of particles you would put into the sort of surrounding area but there was no evidence to say that wearing the mask didn't stop you getting it because of course there's no hermetical seal around that but that that was that was the extent of how good they were they were like a very poor you know well and then and there's yeah there's a lot of data discussing the size of the virus versus the size of you know like uh you know, some virus-ridden phlegm that you could eject from your from your throat if you're if you're coughing, you know, without without covering your mouth. But I think the the most compelling data that I've come across said that uh, most people wearing most masks were only about three percent effective for the general population. And so, yeah. you know, whatever. So, so masks aren't effective. If you want to wear one, help yourself. Yeah, for sure. I'm not, I mean, it, it's, it's not like, like smoking cigarettes where you're going to see somebody with a mask. I mean, they were, they were really trying to make that twist. Like, oh, you're not wearing a mask, you plague rat. Like there were, there were media personalities calling people that didn't want to wear masks or get vaccinated plague rats. Because of the, you know, the points it would get them a la Piers Morgan for their, their corporate media sponsors. But yeah, now this... I mean, if the, if, if, if the government really cared, they would have distributed masks that actually worked. You know, hermetically sealed masks that are used for, for medicine. This is fairly common, right? Commonplace in, in lots of hospitals. For any kind of airborne diseases, bacteria, viruses, whatever, they wear those masks and they wear them because viruses and bacteria can't get through them but they are literally sealed to your face and tested before you go into the you know the ICU or something you know some fucking piece of cloth in front of your face is obviously not going to be the same level as something that was like mass produced to be actually effective against viruses and tested against any kind of virus and and, bac- and bacteria in the air well, so yeah this this whole mass thing is so frustrating because it's just like yeah it's just bullshit really the initial application for for a mask was to keep uh, saliva and and phlegm and and anything that was inside the doctor from entering the open cavity of the surgical patient. Right. Right. So. When Anthony Fauci was sending emails to concerned citizens early on in the pandemic, he was saying, no, you don't have to wear a mask everywhere. 
That's not very effective. And then he was in uh, an interview prior to the pandemic where the, the interviewer asks him, if I want to you know, take steps to, to protect my health, what do I do? Do I do this? Do I do that? Do I wear a mask all of the time? And his response is as he's laughing at the ridiculousness of what this interviewer is asking him. He says, no, no, no. We're going we're gonna to get rid of all of those negative things, and we're going to do something positive. And he talks about reducing your alcohol intake, eating healthier, more nutritious foods. Yeah, and getting sure. exercise as always to boost your immune system and protect yourself from I, I believe the the context of the discussion was about the flu. He says, no, don't wear a mask. Do all of these positive things to boost your immune system. Smash cut to 2019-2020 when the virus is and suddenly Anthony Fauci, a la Piers Morgan, is a completely different person with a completely different story. And then he was recently just being interviewed about all of these studies that have come out showing that masks aren't effective, that the policy of mask mandates wasn't rooted in science. He then says, yes, but for the individual person who masks up, it's, it's, masks are much more effective for the individual. Okay, well, when all yeah. of the individuals mask up, and it turns into the masses are masking. We've done the study that says that's not an effective health policy. But they're all so afraid of admitting that they were wrong. We just have to keep on trucking. Yeah, pressing them. With, with the, the bad science. And, and all of the corporate media is happy. Like, like they're just there. It, 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 it appears that they're just chomping at the bit waiting to to roll out the same i mean because it would be i mean not only would it be what you know pfizer who's pfizer and moderna seem to sponsor everything nowadays not only is that what they want but it's also like the least amount of effort they can just recut all of the same stuff that they've that they were spewing you know a year ago about masking and vaccinating and social distancing and they don't have to do any actual new investigative journalism. But I can't no, believe yeah, it's, it's I, true. I, not, not only, not only can I not believe that these people are going to go, that anyone would go along with it again, but that any of these people would agree to, I mean, the, the real question is, will the media get behind it? Because I, it's my opinion that a, a lot of, the reason for their decline in the ratings and, and the general sort of disinterest from the public is because they lied and lied and lied about COVID over and over and over again. And they trotted out these same experts that said, oh, you know, ivermectin is, is horse paste and you can't take that because you're not a horse. And, and the FDA just lost a lawsuit about that. They were, uh, someone was suing the FDA. You know what? I should, let's, let's pull it up. So I have this article from uh, ABC News, not exactly what I would call reputable or trustworthy, but it is a local affiliate, which I think gives it a little bit more 
credibility. There's at least the hope for credibility when it's a local affiliate. Uh, but they write, a federal appeals court Friday revived a lawsuit by three doctors who say the Food and Drug Administration overstepped its authority in a campaign against treating COVID-19 with the anti-parasite drug ivermectin. Ivermectin is commonly used to treat parasites in livestock. It can also be described, uh, prescribed for humans. And it has been, see, like, you see that, how it, it can also be prescribed for humans. No, it was invented for humans. It won the Nobel Prize for its anti-parasitic properties. And then it was later used to treat horses. And, and other livestock, as many medicines that were created for humans are applied. If a medicine works, it works. But that didn't stop the experts from going out and saying, it's horse paste and you shouldn't take it because that's what their corporate masters wanted. You know, they, they, they wanted it to be true. More from the article, the doctors can proceed with their lawsuit, contending that the FDA's campaign exceeded the agency's authority under federal law. The ruling said, FDA is not a physician. It has authority to inform, announce, and apprise, but not to endorse, denounce, or advise. Judge Don Willett wrote for a panel that also included Jennifer Walker Elrod and Edith Brown Clement, quote, the doctors have plausibly alleged that FDA's posts fell on the wrong side of the line between telling about and telling to. And they've referenced this tweet that the, F the FDA's official Twitter account put out that said uh, something to the effect of, uh, you're not a horse, you're not a, you're not a cow, seriously, y'all, stop it. Because the FDA is in bed with Big Pharma. And people, oh, that, sure they are. people yeah. that go, people that work at the FDA often get nice contracts for consulting or permanent employment positions from Pfizer and Moderna for pulling the right strings and overlooking the right kind of regulations to make, you know, to, to help Pfizer's stock price. Go up, and, yeah, and, of course. I and, mean, look, look at the like opiate crisis. Where the fuck did that come from? That came from the FDA not doing their fucking due diligence and taking bribes from, you know, big pharma companies pushing fucking highly addictive pain pain medication. And a lot of the stuff. I mean, and and it's not just. I mean, th this is where I start to rage out because these institutions are meant to protect us from these evil corporations that just want to sell product and, and yeah, that's why we pay taxes. Exactly. So not only do you have an opiate crisis and questionable vaccines and other, like th these companies, Pfizer is, has paid the largest criminal fines in United States history. Like crazy. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling it up as I, as I try, try to speak. What for? Because the dollar amount is insane. 3.5 billion. 2.3 wow. billion. Wait, why though? Why, why would they find? In 2009, this is, this is my brave browser summarizer, so just caveat. <laughs> okay. In, sure. in 2009, 
Pfizer paid a criminal fine of $1.195 billion for promoting the sale of Bextra for several uses and dosages that the FDA declined to approve due to safety concerns. This was the largest criminal fine ever imposed in the United States for any matter. Since 2002, Pfizer and its subsidiaries have been assessed $3 billion in criminal convictions, civil penalties, and jury awards. The $2.3 billion settlement in September 2009 set a new record for both criminal fines and total penalties. Legal claims against the pharmaceutical industry have varied widely over the past two decades, including Medicare and Medicaid fraud, off-label promotion, and inadequate manufacturing practices. And this is like the crux of the lawsuit, I think, for the FDA, because as long as healthcare and doctor-patient relationships have existed, it's been the doctor and the patient that have decided on the treatment. So the FDA yeah. now is being sued and will is is writing checks as I understand it because they have been working with these pharmaceutical companies to discourage these existing treatments because if it is known that ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine are effective in treating COVID-19, then Pfizer and Moderna lose their emergency use authorization for their vaccines and other patented treatments that were being like, like remdesivir, which is a devastating drug, destroys your kidneys. And, and it's been said that it kills, uh, it kills more people than it cures. But since it's a, you know, $1,000 a pill, or I mean, it's, it's probably not that, but it's it, the, the cost of these treatments that are being pushed by the corporate media and these big pharmaceutical companies are 1,000% more expensive than a course of hydroxychloroquine or, or ivermectin. And, and these are the same drugs that are prescribed to people that are immigrating from, from other countries. You, you come from uh, South America, for example, on a, on a work visa. They're going to give you a week's worth of, of hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin to uh, make sure that you just are healthy before you, you come into the country. Uh, this, of course, all is fallen by the wayside with our, you know, open open borders issue. But I don't know. I I don't really care a lot about the the border issue. I mean, I care that the, that it's completely unfettered and unmonitored. Like we should know we should know who's coming in. But I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't agree with borders. I get very. Uh, I get very liberal very quick when we talk about immigration because i think well i think that, that this immigration is it's it's perpetuated for the same reason that these global corporations want to offshore their manufacturing so donald trump uh, one of the first things that he did or one of the continuous things that he did uh during his presidency was impose tariffs on United States companies that offshored their manufacturing. So you have a company that's, you know, 
headquartered in the United States, but manufactures all of its products in China, well, that company is going to have to pay a hefty tariff on importing those goods because Donald Trump wanted manufacturers to manufacture in the United States and provide jobs for American citizens. Well, a a corporation doesn't want to do that because it's all about the bottom line. They want to make their stuff for as little as possible and sell it for as much as possible. Yeah. Donald Trump put in these tariffs and he built a wall. And that leaves these corporations no option but to, I mean, I don't know what, rig an election? But you can bring, if you can't offshore your manufacturing because you have to pay tariffs, which Joe Biden has left in place largely, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he has. Well, then you can employ some uh, non-governmental organizations to go down to South America and stir up a caravan. Send that caravan north. And then you've got a surplus of low-wage workers that you can get to do the same job for, what, a, a third of the cost or, or less. And, and I just read an article that said uh, it, was, it was from the right, certainly, about this uh, you know, farmer, some, some kind of agricultural employee that said, oh, I was getting away with paying guys you know, $18 an hour, $20 an hour, but now they want $35 an hour and $40 an hour. And he was speaking in the context of these immigrants on work visas. It used to be a lot cheaper, but because of the economy and this and that, and they know what they're worth and they know that they, uh, you know, how much the job should pay and they're legal. That was the part that he left out. So when you're in the country legally, the employer, they have no tools of manipulation over you. And I think I've told the story before. I, I've, I've worked in a situation where that was the case with one of the employees employees he was undocumented so he never got a raise ever he had worked there for like 13 years and i came in and and let it slip how much they were paying me right out of the gate for being there for three days and he got really upset because that's a gross injustice yeah you you bring these you lure these people here you know, to, to the, the land of milk and honey, the American dream. Come here and, and enrich yourself. And then you find out, oh, I can only get a job with a, with a you know, massive uh, you know, agriculture company that only wants to pay me $5 an hour. And I can't really, yeah. I, don't, I don't really have a choice because they're one of the few p- places that's going to hire me. That's why we have open borders. Because these companies don't want to offshore their manufacturing, but they also don't want to pay a living wage to American workers. Is this any, is this any part of the conversation in the, in the UK, the, the political discussion? Uh, yeah, immigration is a huge part. Um, although we don't have like, you see, we don't have many, there are a few, but not like America. Because in America, you have those sanctuary cities and there's a lot of places that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're undocumented, which I think is part of the problem as well. Like, if you, if you like, basically give these people a place to go, then, uh, you know, and not solve the problem, which is getting them the right paperwork and getting them in a position where, uh, they can get their citizenship. 
because um, if they just stay undocumented forever, then they're they're just rife for exploitation, right? But here in the UK, like we have a lot of immigration. Um, many people dislike immigration very passionately, uh, and uh, that's the only conversation that people have is about reducing immigration. The only people I've ever seen that say we need to increase it are people that talk about the economy and the future of the UK and. I'm in the same boat with with that. To be fair, like you know, I look at our aging population in the UK, and it's not possible for 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 like my generation to 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 pay for you know pensions and taxes and stuff to support the older generation. We will need immigration, a quite significant immigration, probably at least double what we're doing per year to to keep up with the rate of aging in our population, especially since. Uh, especially since immigrants that come here tend to have children more, and when you have children, then you stay longer. And if you stay longer, you add more to the economy and this, that, and the other. So, it, quite often, you can raise birth rates by importing people as well. So there's 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 that thing there. But actually, on this topic, a really uh, interesting news story just came out in Canada. Uh, in Canada, they have just discovered that um, they actually had one million people uh, that are staying past their visa that they did not know about until like a week ago. So that's a really interesting one right there. Well, and that's that's part of the problem. I, I think that's it, it's one of the things that that leads people to being upset with immigration. They're. No, and there's there's no enforcement. Not only is there no enforcement, I mean, this is one of the big, you know, excuses. Oh, we have to we we removed the remain in Mexico policy. You know, that being the policy where the immigrants uh would apply for asylum in uh because very few immigrants that claim asylum are actually from Mexico. So Trump right. Trump put in this this remain in Mexico policy which says you can apply for asylum in the United States but we're not going to let you in. So Biden got rid of that policy right right out of the gate. And and they've then now there's been a court battle back and forth about how, you know, can we is it, is it constitutional? Can we leave it in? Do we have to take it out? Do we have to let these people? But of course, while the legal battles are going on, all of these people are allowed to come in like, like eight, eight yep. million, eight million migrants or something crazy like that. Since, I mean, this is the, the official reporting, maybe it's 5 million, maybe the reported number is 5 million and it's, but it's actually 8 million. Just a, a crazy number. Uh, this really doesn't bother me except for the fact that we don't have enforcement for making sure they go to their court date. Uh, we don't have enforcement for, uh, denying entry to people with violent, uh, criminal backgrounds or, uh, people like on the terrorist watch list. And then we don't have law enforcement. We don't have sufficient law enforcement in these areas where the immigrants are going to. And I, you know, I, I don't want to, uh, you know regurgitate trump's saying you know they're they're rapists and murderers and they're not sending their best but that that is in my opinion a byproduct of poverty not 
yeah. it, it, it's that that's not you know your 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 criminal tendencies don't really have anything to do with your race in my opinion it's more about your income level so yeah, these are all problems that are related to immigration that could be uh, you know rectified by a competent oh, sure, government yeah. and competent yeah, yeah, law yeah. enforcement yeah, they they could. I think one of the one of the easiest things they could do is is just simplify and streamline the the way in in which immigrants apply and and get their you know permanent residency or at least you know a sort of long term working thing because then they're at least on for, they can join the workforce as soon as possible and be on the same level as anyone else. I think that's one of the real big key things that America needs to get right because if you have a bunch of people that um, say you have a bunch of undocumented uh, immigrants that you know are let's say they're being paid under what a normal person would be paid right first of all that hurts that that hurts anyone that's normally working right so that's you know they might employ more undocumented immigrants or something like that second of all that immigrant can't really progress in their career because of their position and so that hurts the economy because the economy is really measured on gdp per capita right and if you're not growing in terms of your how much productivity can one person in your uh, country do per year if you're not progressing that then then you're not really moving as a nation you're just adding more stuff but you're not really becoming better and if you have a bunch of people that are essentially stuck because they don't have the right paperwork or something like that then that essentially it isn't a drag on the economy but it, it's one of these things where you just have a bunch of random almost slightly useless people that are stuck until you get one generation down the line, which, you know, are born American and they have their citizenship and stuff. And we do that process here in the UK. The problem that we have with that is the process is so complicated and it takes so long. And also the courts are so underfunded that these people sit in limbo, not working at all, not contributing to the, to, to the, to the economy at all for great periods of time. And that, and that, means that essentially any time we're taking a big influx of say asylum seekers or or uh immigrants it, it's it's like an anchor off the side of the the boat slowing us down until we can get through that backlog but that backlog is huge it might take us a year or two just to get through them all and that's not counting the ones that you know will you know arrive every week on small boats or in our airports and stuff like that so there's there's lots of there's lots of easy wins here and a lot of it comes down to just streamlining the way for them to get into work and from there you can you can sort everything else out you know like but as long as they get into the workforce uh and they can they can do their own thing i think that's i think that's just a win you know there's a conversation to be had about whether whether people want more immigration or less immigration and that's perfectly fine but I think if you're going to have more immigration or significantly relax the rules around asylum seeking, then you have to have processes involved so that those people that do come in actually have a chance to contribute properly to your economy and not just come in and just become useless to the economy. That, that just doesn't make sense. How much of this issue do you think stems from uh, a person's willingness to work? Like we could accomplish, like, like how much more do you think we, we could accomplish with the policies that are in place with just a little bit more uh work ethic i don't i don't think that much to be fair i mean if if you look at the way the policies are around in, in the western world 
it, it is it is quite prohibitive you know let's say you want to build a housing estate um one of the problems about building houses and you know many times what ends up happening is a big contracting company will buy up all the land and then they will subcontract all the building work to uh, just a building company that do bricklaying and, and carpentry and electricians and stuff like that. So if you go back 100 years, let's say 100, 200 years, those same kinds of people are still building the house. But the only difference now is that the process to get everything approved and permitted and, and to buy up mm-hmm. the land, it takes so much upfront capital that, that really uh, it's artificially inflating uh, that market and artificially making more paperwork and bureaucracy even though the same amounts of people and the same kinds of jobs are building those homes. And that's just one aspect of that. So in the current, in the current state, that's why countries are, are trying as much as possible to, to let in as many immigrants as, as possible because they, they can't see the bureaucratic problem in front of them. All they see is, is that we just need more people. They don't realize that if you add more people and don't grow your GDP per head, you are essentially fucked in the future. Because if you have a bunch of people that are on their pensions, because they're in the UK, especially the pensions are paid not from a, a pot, but they are paid from taxes that the current working uh, population uh, attributes to, right? So it, you can't just have a bunch of people coming in and let's say there's an aging population where costs go up in the future and stuff like this. You have to have a, a growing economy in terms of like actual product productivity and not just size because what happens if i mean it's happening now what happens if you have a really big boom point right like the baby boomers and now we're in a point where we don't have that many people working you're in a really bad position because essentially you've shrunk down your your population and you've got two options you either make the population more efficient which over the long period of time will actually work out much much better or you increase population which is which which is good in some ways and and bad in others, right? Because if you have more population, then there's more people consuming resources and housing and all those other secondary industries. Uh, but if you make the existing population you have more efficient, then you can do more with with less less expenditure in healthcare, less expenditure in police and other public institutions, and plus you get extra tax money from the people that are that are doing better. And so any major like really successful country that has a really efficient population you can immediately see the difference between you know somewhere like you know china like 40 years ago had a gdp per capita of like probably less than two thousand dollars per person and now they're up to about twelve thousand dollars and that is that is a completely life-changing change for china i mean they're in some yeah they're, they're in some problems now of course but you know you can you know, China, if you go back, they didn't have anything like Shanghai or Beijing where they had the huge buildings and stuff. But you can see how they haven't, you know, they have increased their population, sure. But they had the, the one-child policy and all these sort of things to actually reduce their population. And the way they really came out and smashed everyone else was by really uh, making their population work efficiently in a way that actually benefits the economy in the long term. And so really... Yeah, if I if I was to answer your question in a very short way, I don't think it's possible. I think radical uh, reforms and changes, very simple things like, say you want to encourage house building to bring house house prices down. Really, if I was the government, I wouldn't put in schemes that basically go to the home buyer. So if the home, if you say to the home buyer, like in the UK, you say, uh, 
we as the government will use tax money to pay 25% of your, um, ha- your first home uh, as a loan. See, that, all that does is that essentially pays for these overinflated, uh, overinflated homes and you're paying 25% of that. So essentially you're paying 25% of all the profit and all the bullshit and all the bureaucracy that comes in with that. Doesn't it make more sense as a government and you know it's more respectable for, for taxpayers is to actually, uh, instead of paying, f- paying for the, l- giving a loan out for the total price of the home, but to actually uh, put up, let's say, 25% of the cost of building the home just in the raw materials and the and the actual uh, labor that it takes to build it. Because yes. then you're, right? So then you're only incentivizing the house building and you're not incentivizing overinflated house prices and, and also creating a demand for those houses that are already in short supply. So it's things like that where, you know, government can do some really interesting things. And as a libertarian, that that hurts my brain. But at the same time, you have to be really smart about what you do because there are really cool ways you can invest in the economy. But you have to, inv- as the government, you must invest on, on the ground floor and not make these widely, you know, like these energy things and all this sort of stuff that, that just inflates the economy to no end because th- these don't solve any real problems. They only push these problems down the line down the line like the the best well, thing and, the government could, and yeah, often they for they create more problems yeah definitely but it's it that was it was really brilliant to hear you say you know don't offer an incentive to the to the end buyer because that creates like the problems that we have with healthcare and uh like student loans because you've you've offered the incentive to the payer and then that allows the you know the 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 home builder for example to charge an inflated price the only thing is you would have to uh if you incentivized the builder by doing things like removing regulations and and making it uh more cost efficient to build the home you then do actually have to rely on you know, the, the builder themselves to pass that savings onto the consumer. Unfortunately in, in the United States, there is, uh, I, I, I feel like most of the corporations would tend to just pocket that savings and charge the same price, you know, because of the, the free market and, and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if that, if, if that's the case, then, then even so that that's absolutely fine. Because let's let's say a, a regular semi-detached house in the UK is 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 uh, you know around me that would be maybe four hundred and fifty to five hundred thousand pounds. Okay, and so let's say to build that home, uh, really you're looking at a cost of one hundred and twenty thousand pounds to build that home, right? So even if the builder uses the same price at the very end, okay, and uh, it takes an extra profit from the government putting up some of the money to for the supply. You're, the government and the taxpayer are still paying less money because they're not paying twenty five percent of the five hundred grand to the home buyer as a loan. They're only paying twenty five percent on the hundred and twenty that it took to build the home. So even if the even if the builder says, "I'm just going to pocket this money," essentially, 
uh, and charge the home out at the same price. The problem isn't the price that the home buyer has to pay. The problem is the fact that the home price is, is high in the first place because they're already incentivizing it. And once you take that incentivized bit away, then home prices should come down because demand will come down. And then if the people that do buy those homes, they are, they are not buying it with that you know, extra 25% that the taxpayer has to throw in. So it's a win-win, really. House, house prices, even if they stay the same, the taxpayer is paying a lot less. And we're getting the increased supply in, home, in homes, which is ultimately the thing that, that uh, you know, uh, controls pricing in any areas, right? If you have a huge, uh, massive uh, sort of housing, housing sector, then um, that's that's going to reduce prices uh, significantly in that local area. So yeah, I still think, yeah. So in, in your, in your example, yeah, I still, I still think if the builder wanted to be an asshole and just charge the same price, it's still cheaper for, for the government and for the taxpayer. And it's uh, ultimately increasing supply. Well, and it at least allows other builders to compete in the market, you know, like, Oh, Hey, well, we, we know that we're getting these. Not, not only reducing regulations to cut costs but also yeah. we're we're getting these incentives to build so we can offer houses at lower prices to attract more buyers and and you know let that douche keep charging more money i i, I think you're right i think eventually yeah. the market would <laughs> regulate itself yeah of course because th- there's things that aren't even like you know when you start when you start deregulating like like permits and like and safety stuff you know that's one thing i'm not sure if i'm totally on on board with that bit but there's lots of things that are in regulation and lots of things that control the way housing works and the zoning and stuff which isn't necessarily anything wrong but it's the amount of time that it takes to do that and the housing uh project near me they bought the land five years right and it took them four years just to get approved from the government to do that and of course that is going to reflect in the end home price yeah because they have to recoup you know the money that was lost from them having to you know have that capital tied up in the land for so long yeah and so very yeah so so say the government spends you know the average person that works in the planning area is going to earn 24 to sort of 37,000 pounds in in the local council and say you spend a bunch more money hiring these people to to just lower let's say lower those those time scales down by a half that is going to significantly impact the housing sector because no longer do you need to be a massive company right because to to be a company and let's say i'm going to buy you know 250 acres of land and i'm only going to make money back in 8 years once i get the planning permission and everything done in five years and then three years once they're all sold and I've got the deposits and stuff like that. That is not possible for like the average sort of like smallish home builder company. That is only possible for large multinational companies that have access to working capital that can get it on really good deals because they're the ones that can put up all the money in the beginning and have money to burn while they wait for that investment to come down in the way. So by uh, by reducing the timescales, that means that people can justify the expense because they know, okay, if I buy all this land, 
in six months, a year, two years, I'm building. And then from there, I make my money. I can put the deposits down and I'm, I've, I've got some working capital. It's much less prohibitive to smaller business. And you're getting, this is the thing, you're getting the exact same end product. You don't even have to change any of the regulations around how these things are made. You're getting the same end product. It's just more people with less bureaucracy, corporate bureaucracy, not even government bureaucracy, are able to to build it because now that company that was subcontracted to can actually say, no, we're going to take on some of the work ourselves. And that opens up all kinds of possibilities for, you could apply that to, to many, 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 many industries. Um, just, uh, and then you, you solve a lot of really easy wins, I think. Yeah, there's, well, and there's not like, in, in terms of regulations, like not everything, it, it, especially in, in California, for example, not everything is, I mean, it, it might be couched as a safety regulation, but builders and inspectors and, uh, you know, prospective builders and even homeowners that are trying to do something simple, like, like put a pool in, you know, I think it's, it's been a running joke now, uh, Bill Maher, the sort of you know, talk show host, Democrat personality. He's kind of a love him or hate him kind of guy. Probably a lot like Pierce Morgan. Uh, to br- to bring it back around, the joke is he's been trying to get a pool built at his home in California for something like eight years, and he's just he's like he hasn't given up. He's like, nope, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna one way or the other. I'm gonna win. I'm gonna win this battle because I'm gonna have a pool in my house. Damn it! But there's other ridiculous things like. Uh, if you want to put in a solar system, you have to, you know, add $10,000 to your, uh, you know, to your total cost because of where you have to put the shutoff switch. You have to put the shutoff switch on the edge of the property. Whereas every other electrical shutoff switch is in the house. So it's, it's things like that, that act as deterrence. And then on, on top of that, there's, the fees for for permitting to just sort of reinforce your point about you know the the cost of entry to these other uh you know potential builders or potential you know anythingers once you once you become accustomed you know like the the city or the county becomes accustomed to collecting a certain amount for their permits and they have this stable of builders that they know, oh, these are all big builders. They all afford these permitting fees, no problem. We can count on this much money on a year, you know, semi-yearly basis from these builders and all of their developing. Well, then you say, ah, uh, I think we'd, we'd like a little bit more money, you know, year to year from these builders. And I know you guys can afford it. So, you know, we're going to jack up the cost of all of our permits by 10% further solidifying the barrier to entry for any yeah. new prospective builders or anybody that wants to even come in and 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 start to try to start a new business i mean look at what happened with covid to all the small businesses yeah yeah it's, is, it's really it really is quite sad it really is quite sad and quite a lot of it is like you know for a small business in the uk you uh you have to have, you know, you have to have uh, like GDPR compliance. You have to pay a fee to the ICO every year, even for a very small limited company. I mean, it could be someone that's a bricklayer. It could be someone that runs a small coffee shop and they have all this bureaucracy just to sell fucking coffee to someone. You know, I understand 
you know, health and safety regs, someone comes along and, and checks out your premises to make sure, you know, your, where you're preparing food is safe for consumption, that I totally get. But there's all this stuff that isn't even related to a, to a corporation. You know, like, oh, if, if you build a new commercial premises now, you must have electric chargers. Like that is a that is in law. You must have for every like I don't know I don't know how what percentages of your parking spaces outside. But you must have electric chargers. I mean that's just outrageous. Only the largest of company companies or contractors can afford to find people that install those things, and they're really expensive, right? And I don't think they can charge money for those. So like you're you're having to pay for the electrical fees as well, uh, dude. It, that just jacks up the rents. And so it, it, it's just like a, it's just a, a ladder of all this stuff in, in business, which really could be simplified by just saying, hey, look, there's some, some businesses need this. Once you get to a certain size, right? You know, once you get like to a certain size, revenue wise or whatever, then you can start worrying about all these things because it actually matters. It affects a great deal of people. Like if a small coffee shop does a GDPR violation, it's, no, it's nowhere near the same as it would be for a company like Apple or Google or anything to do a GDPR uh, you know, violation is completely different. And so for the small business, it's like, why should they have to worry about that? Surely that should, their focus, right, should be making good product and selling and doing a good thing and paying their rent on time and contributing to the economy and employing people. That is what they should be doing and growing their business. Once they get to a size which you know, significantly impacts the economy if something bad was to happen, then you start to bring in these sort of checks and balances to make sure that these large, you know, organizations are obviously not doing, you know, bribery and fraud and all these kind of other, you know, things that tends to happen with, with large multinational businesses. And that's why those laws are there for. But it, it doesn't make sense to have the blanket slate against all the companies when, you know, really, you know, if you look at all the major multinational companies now that are huge, when they were first started, they were not, there were none of these regulations, right? And so if you were to start uh, something like Coca-Cola today, there was no way that you would ever uh, be successful enough today to beat Coca-Cola at their own game because they, they were started back in 1820 or something when there was fucking basically no rules around, around any of that. And that's the problem today. It's that you're you're trying you're playing in a game which is so weighed against you because the rules are basically the same for everyone even though you know these businesses were started and now they have money and they were started way before it makes no sense they i think well i wonder and 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 we've got a wrap here but i think we will just continue this in into a part 2 because After hearing this conversation and your perspectives and, and then my own conspiracy theories on, on the whole ordeal, I can't help but wonder how much of this, because in my, you know, my, my personal belief, my doctrine, is that these, it, it's, it's the, cor- the, the mega corporations that are really pulling most of the strings for you know, the operations of, of the globe and, and all of the countries. And it makes me wonder, like we, we saw with COVID, so many small businesses go under because they, they, couldn't, they couldn't lock down for two weeks. They had to have that income. But it wasn't, you know, 
Walmart didn't have to lock down. They could stay open. And they just put what they hung a, a piece of plexiglass up between the, the cashier and the customer and all these arbitrary things that they, you know, whatever they could do to create the appearance of, of you know, creating these COVID safety procedures. So that wiped out a ton of small business, a ton of small business and, and medium-sized business. I think I've mentioned on the show before, there was a restaurant down the street. It made it like two days into, into 15 days to slow the spread before there were four lease signs up on the building. Yeah. These corporations yeah. are paying a lot of these politicians through their, you know, paying into their campaign funds, through their their political action committees and and I mean direct contributions uh as well. I mean and and then there's the you know in, entire other aspect of, you know, like book deals and uh you know potential advisory positions or or seats on the board of of directors for these politicians who helped advance the company's agenda it just makes me wonder like how much how how much of these regulations are politicians just sitting around with nothing to do and how many of them are prompted and conceptualized by these companies that want yeah. to eliminate competition. I, I think it, it has to be probably at least a little bit of both. Yeah, it has to be. I, I, I would, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's not going to be all one or all the other, right? I mean, it's a gradient, but I think for sure in the UK, there's an element of, you know, local councillors, they have nothing better to do and they love sticking their nose into anything and creating bureaucracy wherever they can because... They don't want the UK to change like one bit ever, um, even if it doesn't even affect them or anyone. And then you have people that are just plain stupid. Okay, uh, yeah. you have people that are. You, you have to accept the fact that pe people people do not like to work for the government. Uh, that are really smart. They go and work in tech. They go and work in banking. They go and work in other places. And so you know, in a in a general rule. The kind of people that end up at government aren't the sharpest tools in, in the shed. So you have to accept the fact that some of them, some of these policies are just made because they're just not very smart. And then you have the people that are obviously taking, you know, bribes and lobbying from large multinational corporations, you know, like that guy that was the head of the, uh, the FCC or something that came from Verizon or something, Ajit Pai, I think his oh, name was. Yeah. That, that rings a bell. That rings a bell. It's like that was just like so blatantly obvious that. You know, it was so blatantly obvious that, that that was what was going on. And then you have other stuff that's just politically motivated, you know, that people want to get something through because they think it will benefit um, themselves, not yeah, necessarily monetarily. Yeah, credentials wise or power wise, it gives them extra powers in certain areas. So there's all of that going on. And there's there's always additional stuff. We never see stuff that's that's taken away. I think that's the problem with with our Western societies and the way they're set up is that they're not set up in a way that we can easily and safely uh, deregulate ourselves. It's always a case of that there's a new bill that overwrites another one that adds significant bureaucracy or removes a little bit and then adds some others. It's, it's very complicated and 
I think a lot of that needs to be like looked at. I don't know who's going to look at that. It would take me fucking years to look at that. And then I wouldn't have any power anyways to change it. So, well, and then you also have to look at it from, from the perspective of it's, it's like, I think a great example for, for here in the States is, is term limits for our, for our congressmen. We have to rely on the congressman to say, yeah, we're going to limit the amount of time that we can stay in office. Well, how, how can yeah. you rely on that? How can you rely on the, I mean, who wants to regulate their own job away? Like that's how, how can that happen? Yeah, it's ridiculous because the incumbent person has such an advantage over everyone else because they can control the narrative. They can control policy. You know, even like in the UK, we have the leveling up minister, right? We have the leveling up office, which is an office that was made by the Tories uh, to just, you know, give extra money that's government money to local pr provinces and stuff like that. But the problem with that is they have named it, they've branded it, their Tory leveling up thing. And then when Labour, because Labour has to have a shadow, they have their own sort of shadow government that shadows each department. They now have a shadow leveling up secretary. So any other, any other party that's in opposition has to have that name attached to them. So the incumbent government or the incumbent congressman, they have such an advantage over everyone else because they already know the playing field. They know how everything works. They can make policies in their own name. You know, Obamacare, uh, this, that, and the other, right? It's just yeah, outrageous. Yeah. So having term limits on M M MPs, and I would love if they put term limits on MPs, um, and putting term limits on you know, congressman, I think is a great idea because it forces you to be a little bit more pragmatic and objective in government to focus on delivering policies and delivering good service for your citizens and not delivering on things that solidify your uh, future in, in office, which I think is the whole problem behind a lot of our Western governments, which is that they seem to act in self-preservation uh, rather than in a way that benefits the country as a whole uh, long term hey oh they they absolutely do and and i've i've heard it said and i've mentioned it on this podcast mo most of the time that a politician spends in office is spent fundraising and not legislating right there you and, go then and i don't think any of the the founding fathers anticipated that people would want to have careers in politics but i think it's it's also kind of human too to to just you know hey this is this is where i'm at this is what i'm doing i mean personally i hate the idea of of trying to look for another job i don't i don't want to look for another job it's you know it's very inconvenient <laughs> yeah yeah for and sure it is so yeah. i i can't really blame other people for feeling the same way, but you're supposed to be, you know, you're an elected leader. You're supposed to be doing the right thing for the people that elected you, not doing the right thing for yourself. Yeah, Unfortunately, for sure, we've, right? we've found ourselves in this position where we've elected all of these people who say one thing and do another. And since the other thing that they're doing is for the people who are filling up their, their campaign coffers, and they're also the people that own <coughs> own all of the mainstream media outlets. We're like the odd man out. Like we, we yeah, for sure. We're becoming the useless money, eaters. 
Yeah, that's it. Because if you're trying to if you're trying to raise money, fundraiser, and you're already in government, uh, you know, you're a known entity, you're a proven winner, um, and you can exact policy today, right now. And so, which is going to be more attractive to uh, someone that wants to give you money? Is it going to be the person that's already a proven winner, or is it going to be someone that's completely new? It's a tough choice. I mean, I would put my money on on the winner, and and that's why getting rid of getting term limits in place is so good because it completely eliminates that conversation past eight years, right? Past two terms, uh, because then it's like, well, it's more about the party and what the manifesto says and what the overall policies are, and then that realigns people's you know perspectives where they're 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 not voting for a person, but they're voting for what they want in the future. And this brings to mind the old saying, the the cliche, all good things must come to an end. So if your term, if your term as a politician is never ending, can it be a good thing? I I mean, (laughs) ask Lukashenko or Putin or uh, any of the major, you know, ask Kim Jong-un. Well, it's all, it's all relative and, and perspective based, right? If, of course it's great for them. But it's not, uh, I mean, look at, look at where it's gotten us. This, this cabal of politicians funded by corporations shrinking the middle class. Yeah. That, that is the, the, that it's, it's largely the voting class. It's the, the people that are well off enough to have an impact in their communities. It's a byproduct of these people that want to stay in power. That ne- yeah, that definitely. want their they want their their rule to be never ending, and and they say uh, in in communist countries, the billionaires are the politicians, and in capitalist countries, the billi- the billionaires are the business owners, and now we have this merging of corporations. And politicians, and you know what that is? Fascism. Now we have yeah. got to go. <laughs> we'll end on that. We'll end on that positive note. You know, all all yeah. good things must come to an end. And That's here we right. are at the end. Thank you very much for listening. Visit vox404.com. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And at Earthbox on Twitter.com even though they want to call it X. It's still Twitter.com. Any other words, 404? No, thank you very much for listening, and uh, make sure to go check out the next episode. We will talk to you soon.